Hi everyone, it is with a bit of sadness we have to announce that this will be the final episode of Cinematica Animalia. Our lives are getting increasingly busy at the moment and we simply don't have the time anymore that's required to make this a quality podcast. There'll be a thank you towards the end of this episode, so stay tuned. But in the meantime, enjoy this, the final episode of Cinematica Animalia. Bye-bye. This podcast is rated S for science and also for spoilers. And swearing. There's, there's going to be swearing. Something is killing these people and sucking them dry. Run! It's a stampede! That's a barrels for ya. Welcome, everybody, to Cinematica Animalia, your weekly foray into the biology of movie monsters. This week, we'll be covering the movies that made us. Movies, TV shows, works of fiction that inspired us and made us the scientists slash creators that we are today. I'm Adam Hasek. I'm a disease ecologist at the Ben-Gurion University of the Negev here in blistering hot southern Israel. Joining me, as always, is her ladyship Libby Young, story specialist and writer at Short Story Soup. Back from the land down under, Dr. Sam Perrin, invasive ecologist and climate data analyst in, based in Trondheim, Norway. And rounding us out, Dave, our vet and podcast physiologist. How is everyone going? On this, the last episode, Dave will reveal his identity, yeah. which is a cat. <laughs> That's, his full name, David. <laughs> Your full name's David? What? I had a bloody great time back home. It was, it was real. Look, it's just really nice to see the Australian bush and the nature and that sort of stuff. And as much as, you know, I did see some really cool sights, I have this one fantastic story, which is just horrifying. Now, I don't like to shit on members of the general public who don't have the best uh, scientific education because, you know, why would you? It's not their milieu. Uh, but this was mind-blowing. So we were at this tiny little town in country Victoria in an area called the Mallee, where you travel for like two hours. You don't really see much of civilization. There's a couple of silos. Okay. In fairness, like a lot of these towns have been devastated by A, big corporations taking over farming and B, climate change. So a lot of there's there's no one left in these places. But we got to this small place called Jacob's Well Retreat. Should have maybe tipped me off. Uh, the real Jacob's Well is actually not too far from uh, where Libby and Adam are at the moment, right? Probably. Yeah. Sure. Point is that this place, uh, the first thing we see when we get there, anti-vax signs everywhere, right? Fun. Like, ah. nobody can force you to do anything. You don't have to wear a mask. You don't have to, like, even anti-test signs. Any uh, Dictator Dan signs? <laughs> no, nothing like that. But then next step is we get into the reception where they've got Australia first posters everywhere, which is a political party, which, you know, most of you can probably guess is quite heavily uh, right-wing extremists like um, no repeal 18C, way. which is the part of Australia's constitution, which bans hate speech, codify Islam as an extremist religion, um, you know, that sort of crap. But then we get into the room and this is where the, you know, relationship to an ecology podcast comes in they had dvds there which were called things like evolution's achilles heel and what the scientists don't tell you about evolution (laughs) and there was one i would love to see these books oh i didn't know what they were dvds they were movies like oh oh even better 25 phds tell you what the scientists ignore when teaching you about evolution and all this sort of stuff and <laughs> the lie of the dinosaurs and shit like that uh and then just to top it all off the the you know the final escalation there was a dvd right at the back about the truth behind alien encounters uh interviews with three victims of alien probing mm. wow yeah are you sure you weren't in the uh, the slash fix section because i have a friend who would love to read that this was just like lying around in the hotel room like just casual is, viewing. Yeah. <laughs> In Sam's defense, that alien invasion video could have been about a illegal immigrant New Zealander who's just probing Australians. No, there was a full so. on like gray skinny man stereotype on the back cover. <laughs> Where is your leader? Take us to your leader. Moving on to slightly... Uh, Less, but also still absurd news. I've just re- this this segues really nicely. I've just I'm very proud of myself for the segue. There was actually a uh, series of dinosaur footprints which were uncovered this year, uh, this week, 
as a result of a lake drying out that hasn't uh, dried out before uh, in America because of, you know, climate change induced drought. And the comments below this post on the, uh, the National Park social media were just full of three categories of people. People who were genuinely wowed by this discovery. Climate change doomers. Uh, saying we're all fucked. Oh my God, the world's going to shit. Yeah, really helpful guys. And creationists, naturally, saying <laughs> they think we're stupid. We know you planted these beforehand. There's no way people have just discovered these now. The only way that they would have been discovered is if the water levels were at alarmingly low levels for the first time in, you know, hundreds or potentially thousands of years where you would then see the warnings like they found in France. I think that, I think that warning was something like, if you can read this rock, panic. It was prey. Yeah. Prey. Prey. Yeah. So it's in Dinosaur Valley State Park. So, yeah, there is precedent for them being there already. Unless the name is fake, too. (laughs) This is from Stephanie Salinas Garcia of the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, saying, who said, due to the excessive drought conditions this past summer, the river dried up completely in most locations, allowing for more tracks to be uncovered here in the park. Which is, yeah, really fucking cool. They think that uh, the tracks was made by an Acrocanthosaurus. And what might that wow. be? Species of Carcharodontosaurus, which is a big T-Rex kind of lookalike, but not that closely related type animal. But not as gay. <laughs> no, not not as not as woke. <laughs> That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> forgot how I forgot the T-Rex is cancelled now because of how woke it is. On other positive news, I'm sure you guys have been keeping up with uh, California is currently trying to ban the sale of new gas-powered cars by 2035. Yes. New investments in green technology are really cool, and they've got a group of engineers at MIT that have come up with a new cost-effective battery using aluminum. I saw that could one. potentially be one of the, the new resources that they'll be using for a lot of the electric vehicles going forward. And apparently one of the biggest sectors that's actually set to transform the quickest, just based on cost, is probably going to be a lot of our overseas cargo shipping. Apparently, it's fairly easy to move them over to electric ships, and it's been one of the first things that they're talking about might be one of the first early converters to uh, for a number of different reasons, most of which are above my pay grade. I'm saying in other positive news, a teenager named, and I'm sorry if I mispronounce your name, Anika Puri, she has designed a new method of detecting elephant poachers by using machine learning in a $250 camera. This thermal imaging camera basically uses, like I said, machine learning, which is a technique that involves having a computer kind of take what it's be- what information it's being fed, try to get more efficient with that, and effectively learning as a machine, machine learning, to get better at doing whatever task it has been given. This is how a lot of the popular community science apps like iNaturalist work. They get fed a lot of different images. They use those images to then build an idea of what a certain species would look like. So that way, when you put in your image, it can say like, oh, it's probably this because it has learned how to identify it. So her technique uses this, like I said, $250 camera, thermal imaging, and is four times better than the most, the current most efficient method, which costs thousands of dollars. So ideally, this will save more elephants, save money, and be better going forward. How close are we to a reanimated elephant that defends them called Robo Trunk? Hopefully is not this the movie that made you, Dave? Is this what we're focusing on today? <laughs> if there was a movie called Robotrunk, I would have everything in my life about Robotrunk. <laughs> so now all I'm thinking of is Zoids. Oh man, you could go to Comic Con as Robotrunk. I actually met a guy a while ago who made like animated like appendages, like trunks and tails for people, and he's just like, we thought this would be really cool, but ninety percent of it, our customers are just furries. <laughs> Shocking! Absolutely nobody. What do you think was no. going to happen? <laughs> Today, I'm, I'm trying to not be awkward. So although this is the last episode, if you ever want to listen to some of our past episodes or point your friends in that direction, you can find all of them wherever podcasts are sold, aka found. Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, all in the same place. And last but not least, if you want to read some of Libby's work, visit shortstorysoup.substack.com and can read a veritable cornucopia of short stories. And if you want to hear some more about the hardcore science that Sam and I write about and a huge team of international authors, huge international team of authors, I should say, you can check out ecologyforthemasses.com. Team of huge international authors. They're all seven foot five. (laughs) They are. We have a height restriction on writing for the the blog here. The only reason I got in is because I helped create it. So that's why I was allowed to come in as the short fuck that I am at five foot ten. 
So for today's topic, we're going to be touching on, each of us, a movie or a TV show that, in some way, shape, form, or fashion, inspired us to be the people that we are today, at least professionally. And that could be in the realm of science or creative fiction. And we'll then be touching on something related to that for our particular expertise in the podcast. And because I am the loudest, I will be going first. And my movie, um, this is a little bit hard for me because one of our original ideas was kind of talking about what scared us. And because I'm so strong and so tough, none of these movies really scared me when I was a kid. But one movie that will always stand out in my mind is Alien, for good reason. Although I wasn't scared, um, I was able to convince my dad to let me watch Alien when I was, I think, 12, when my mom and siblings were out of town because I wasn't allowed to watch it because it was R and I wasn't 13 yet. But dad said, hey... You know, they're out of town. You can, you can watch it if you want. So I said, great. So I sat down, chair real close to the TV, and made my nice big bowl of mac and cheese. Squishy, squishy, noodly wet mac, mac and cheese, which is relevant. And I was doing fine. And then we, they bring poor victim boy into the table, and fucking chest burst starts squishing and squelching out of his chest. And I just looked down at my big wet bowl of mac and cheese, <laughs> and squishing and squelching around these little noodles that look like guts, and like... <sighs> Easy Mac was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> that was the closest I got to getting up and walking away from the movie, but my dad said, No, you have to finish this. I said, Okay. I feel like I feel like from now on I will always call that little alien Easy Mac. <laughs> it's such a good Easy one. Mac. Little Easy Mac. <laughs> yeah, and I was told to not um told to not tell my siblings because I wasn't allowed to watch it, and I promptly spoiled it by saying thinking I was being so clever and saying like Hey, you know how they say, um, what you don't know can hurt you. And I was like, tell that to the people in Alien. And then, like, of course, mom finds out immediately that I watched this movie I wasn't <laughs> supposed to watch. So my movie is Alien. Now, the, the cast and crew of Alien are not scientists. There is the science officer, but I think he hardly counts because he is a robot created for that purpose. Spoiler alert for a movie that was released 43 years ago. I have always enjoyed horror movies, uh, specifically the monster movies, the haunted house, ghost type movies have never really been my, uh, my j- not something I've been too interested in, but this movie for me is the perfect embodiment of a good horror monster flick. And Aliens, while it's more action than horror, is a really good follow-up to it, and I'm lumping these two, two together for reasons that will soon become apparent. Um, ever since, probably since I was, before I saw this movie, but this movie definitely kind of solidify the desire in me to go to other planets and study wildlife. Um, I've always enjoyed science fiction, science fiction games like Mass Effect and all kinds of different universes like that where there's people that are able to go to different planets, see alien species, be they sentient or a non-sentient form of wildlife. I've always had the desire to go and see, do and see something for that. So the thought of these effectively space truckers having a distress call from a crash-landed ship, going down to a planet and discovering life is really, really cool. Um, I am now a disease ecologist. That means I study parasites. So the idea of parasites are obviously uh, interesting to me. And I think that while I can't specifically put a nail on it or hit, hit the nail on the head and say that this movie is what really specified that love of parasites for me, it is definitely something that was put in the back of my head. It's just such a gnarly mechanic or way of a way of life. Parasites are fascinating to me, and although these are technically parasitoids, they are the best parasites on camp on cinema in cinema or on camera for me. Also, I mentioned a little bit ago that while these while the crew are not scientists per se, I feel like Ripley's determination to succeed and to live mirrors what it takes to succeed in the field of academia and research in general, I would say. You often have to work within a certain set of limitations, many of which can be really severe. You might have this super ambitious project, this thing you've really wanted to do for a very long time, but you don't quite have enough money to do it. You might not have as much time to do it as you want. You might not have the extra people to help you to be able to accomplish everything you want to accomplish with this project. So you normally have to get pretty crafty, have to think of cheap, um, cheaper, but still feasible ways of accomplishing those goals. And I feel that the crew and Ripley especially, do a really, really good job of working with what they have and doing what they can to get out, even though most of them die. But yeah, Ripley and her cat Jonesy made it out, and that is all that really matters. 
I will also say that kind of mirroring one common theme of the podcast for me, at least, is always referring to the idea of a superorganism. And not only are the xenomorphs a really badass example of parasitic lifestyles, they are also work as a superorganism, much like ants and termites, to become very, very difficult to deal with and very efficient at what they do, which is kill people and make more of them. Yeah. I also want to point out that, uh, so I found out during the week that there are certain species of flatworms which have not acidic blood, but acidic sperm. So they will engage in Ooh. these kind of like penis fencing contests. Uh, shout out, by the way, to Jennifer Merrams, who wrote a fantastic article on this on Ecology for the Masses. And some species actually have acidic sperm that will hit the other flatworm and burn into their flesh uh, and inseminate the other species, the other, the other individual. Just, just makes you think about what, what some of the other, you know, practical applications of that uh, that acid blood could have been. It's pretty really intense. Bad super soaker game. Yeah, running children running around with bottles full of acid. It's weird because I feel like with those those flatworms, from my understanding, they are simultaneous hermaphrodites. So they have the they, they have both sperm and egg, or yeah. a penis structure and a. I don't know if they actually have they don't have a vagina, but they have some kind of ovary type structure, I believe. And instead of, you know, having some teamwork and working together to fertilize each other, no, we have to fight about this and I'm going to fertilize you unless yeah. you can beat me and fertilize me. <laughs> well, yeah, because the energetic costs of doing, of fertilizing somebody as opposed to being, as opposed to being fertilized are much, much lower, right? Because you didn't have to bear the eggs and all that sort of shit. That's a really good point. Yeah. I feel like the real life corollary of this is the national sport of Turkey, aka oil wrestling. If you haven't seen this, <laughs> do yourself a favor and look it up. The biggest Should I put safe devious... surf on or do it need to be off? It's it's fine. Your safe surf can be okay. off. Safe <laughs> surf. The biggest, beefiest, hairiest Turkish men oil themselves up and you oil your competitor up so it's super homoerotic. And they just wear like jeans, like really tight jeans, and they just fight to see who can get their hand down the other guy's pants, like to his butt. And if you huh. do it, you win. Okay. It's but speaking of you know, weird sex acts, uh, I would say that like, <laughs> how how would you feel about if we found out that uh, that the alien lifestyle in terms of like the the queen reproducing was more similar to you know certain types of fish, whereby if the alien queen gets knocked off, do you think one of the workers or could you know to potentially become a queen undergo that sort of transformation? From my understanding, at least from the lore of the universe, that's exactly what happens, and in which it is okay. Yeah. And it makes, it makes evolutionary sense. If you have a structure like that and the queen dies and nobody else can be a queen unless somehow a queen is magically born, you're fucked. So as a strategy, it would be heavily selected against. But the ability of one of the drones to become a queen would be great. Which is the theory that that's what the alien in Alien, the, the single xenomorph in Alien is doing. Because in the extended scenes, you see that some of the people, um, the captain, Dallas, has been caked into the wall, much less much like the victims in Aliens. And you see oh, that kind of, that similar mm. horror HR uh, Giga um, nightmare scape of wall structures because it was already building one and potentially about to become a queen itself. In terms of the piece that I wanted to look at that most shaped my desire to get into science was a movie series that I must have watched a million times, which are the Indiana Jones films. Yes. Uh, Even the fourth one? The reason... There's no fourth one. Uh, I, don't, I, yeah, I don't know what he's talking there's, about. <laughs> there's three. I don't. I don't know. What, what about the young about. The Indiana Jones Chronicles with Christian Slater? <laughs> I have no idea what the two River of you are talking about. <laughs> River Phoenix. The, yeah, that's the, it. He says young oh. Indiana and Last Crusade. Clearly, Dave and I are true fans. <laughs> yes. Um, I've seen it so like the once, three Indiana Jones films, with the second one not being great, uh, and ah, hard disagree. Yeah, me too. I spent a a lot of time watching the first and the third over and over and over again. Uh, now the big themes that I picked up from were one scientists could be cool two that scientists could, could fight to protect things. It's a great phrase. This belongs in a museum. The idea that somebody would be risking it right for their scientific principles. It belongs in a museum. So do you. It's a bit weird looking, <laughs> looking back at it like now and thinking, it does belong in a museum, but maybe leave it in the country it belongs to. Yeah. I was about to say, there's a really, there's a really good joke. Um, do you know why the pyramids are in Egypt? Oh, it's too it, big to get back to the Brit. Too, too big to fit in the British <laughs> Museum. <Yeah>. Yep. <laughs> but I will say, so one, that scientists could be cool. 
Two, yeah, scientists could fight and actually really want to protect things, get them into a museum, or fight for their scientific principles. Um, and three, and I know this is terrible, but for a teenage boy, that scientists could get laid. The idea that Indiana Jones is sitting in a classroom and he's watching young girls write things on their eyelids to try and get the attention from the professor. That was a big factor. I don't feel that was reflected in true academia, but maybe you guys have had different experiences than I you, have. You know that whip saw more than just the uh, the field, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and it was a series that I watched over and over again with my dad, who was a big believer in scientific principles and scientific values. Uh, which made The Last Crusade my film in terms of the one that I watched the most often and the one that I felt most connected to. Um, now, in terms of fitting with the theme of our show and just kind of exploring something, and I will say it's something that continues to terrify me and hopefully you guys to this day, the idea of immortality uh, reflected in The Last Crusade and the idea of finding the cup that will allow someone, as long as you keep drinking from it, to live forever. Um, and led to the fantastic line that has been used ever since of, you have chosen wisely, or <laughs> you have chosen poorly. Uh, phrases that I feel occur more in my life than they probably should, <laughs> um, and which definitely in the predicament I am currently with my wife being seven months pregnant, are phrases that I probably use too often in regards to the pregnancy that get me into a lot of trouble. I can't imagine why. So as a, a quick sort of overview, obviously the idea of immortality is very attractive, particularly to a certain group of very rich individuals in our society today. And there continues to be a lot of research centered around this. Uh, there's still only one immortal animal that we've discovered so far on the planet. Uh, do you guys know which one? The immortal jellyfish. jellyfish. The jellyfish? Yeah. Yeah. The Hydra, the Hydra vulgaris. Yeah. So it's the only species that currently shows no signs of aging. Uh, we've observed it a ton, and it seems to possess a very unique gene, something called FOXO, that allows it to regenerate its stem cells continuously. Yeah. I would say it's this, the closest thing to the Doctor from Doctor Who that we have. Yes. yes. Yeah, because it doesn't, like, it, it does, I would say it kind of shows signs of aging, but then it has the ability to revert to, like, an earlier form of life, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. It's like if you went from being you know, so late, cool. late middle age to a child, and then you grew yeah. up again, and then you were just a child again the next day. I'm going to go through the different forms of um, research that's centered around current human work towards anti-aging, uh, probably starting with the stupidest and then hopingly working myself towards more interesting stuff. The first category I wanted to get into is caloric restriction, and I don't know if you guys have heard of these theories. I've come across a uh, a couple breatharians in my yoga journey that claim lots of benefits from caloric restrictions. <laughs> I'm sorry, what is this group of people called? Breatharians. Breatharians. Mm -hmm. Means you can survive off the energy that you breathe. Cool. I've heard the dragon warrior can survive on no more than a single drop of dew. <laughs> <laughs> They've done a lot of interesting research on caloric restriction, and actually in a number of different species, they've found that reduction in caloric intake by 10 to 50% actually has some of the most interesting and convincing research for age uh, retarding and re attenuation that goes on, and has been tested in a variety of different species like mice. And they have found good evidence to support that, yeah, if you reduce it, you do seem to get an increase in their lifespan. However... When it gets changed over into primates, they've done a whole bunch of research, and aside from decreases associated in type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular diseases, a recent study in non-human primates found no effects in caloric restriction whatsoever. Now, this does not stop it from popping up on every single website in regards to trying to live longer. And it did not stop a 20-year-old version of me getting it from an older neighbor who wandered over who told me that he was going to do this to live forever and that I should learn about this when I was starting undergrad. Hmm. Now, no. in terms of other theories that they've looked at, there's the ideas of insulin reduction, the idea that if we somehow decrease production of insulin or insulin receptor substrates to a certain threshold, we can increase lifespan. Again, this has been shown to be successful in worms and flies and some groups of mice. Again, not perfect comparisons to humans and has not been reflected in humans or non-human primates. 
there's been discussions around uh, reducing reactive oxidative species, compounds that are produced during normal metabolic activities that are associated with the development of cancers and a lot of other problems. And again, not super great convincing research, despite the fact that many people will say, well, this is why you have to eat this many blueberries, or this is why you have to eat these many tomatoes, because they're antioxidants. They'll let me live forever. Superfood. Right. There's been a whole bunch of research on different substances that might hold the key to mimicking uh, caloric restriction. The newest one, its name is Reversitrol. (laughs) (laughs) It's just about as unobtainium. What does it do? (laughs) A Decepticon or Autobot? (laughs) it's a compound found in the skin of grapes and certain other plants and some scientists believe that reversitrol is behind uh the evidence such as the french paradox that regularly drinking moderate amounts of red wine could be good for a person's health it might be important to mention to mention here that the scientist who published the original article on the antioxidants in red wine being really good for you have since been found guilty of faking all of that data and have been lost their had their doctorates removed, I believe. There is a theory that basically this compound works by activating a specific gene known as SIRT1 that is also activated during periods of caloric restriction. And so they have theorized, and I would like to stress this because every paper that I found was groups of people saying, well, it is my belief, or I think that... These compounds could basically be used to try and help people to uh, become less active and create less body cellular waste that would allow them to develop less conditions like Alzheimer's and cancer. Stressing again, I think. Now, these products are heavily invested in by people like Bezos. He's actually one of the biggest investors right now in Reversitrol, which is fantastic. And then the last sort of category beyond these types of components. Uh, One of the other ones known as rapamycin, which is also just as stupid, are just the main concept and the one that actually has the most evidence behind it for genetic alteration. That basically, if we move to a point that we are able to activate certain genes which allow us to live longer or to better scavenge various compounds or to better repair damaged telomeres, none none of this research is looking at immortality right now. But there is some evidence that suppressing the release of certain chemicals in middle-aged mice allowed them to live longer and with fewer age-related illnesses. I love the idea of an old man sitting in a cave who somehow has got a fountain which is pouring in reversitrol or rapamycin or some sort of compound that is suppressing various diseases that he has grapes. to drink every day. Or he, He's just right. skinning grapes every day. <laughs> I, I mean, the idea of him just sitting there with a glass of red wine and they're like, you've lived for this long? And he's like, yeah, yeah, but you guys are doing it wrong. You have to drink like 30 of these bottles a day. Why do you think I just live in the cave, man? All right. My pee is clear, but I'm going to live forever. Keith Richards uh, method. Just pickle your body. You won't die. I watched an interview with an old lady who was like 104 one time. And the interviewer was like, what's your secret to to living a long life? And she's like, I drink a glass of Dr. Pepper every day. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like all those those articles you see on people who are, you know, still alive at 110, they've always picked the people with the worst lifestyles. They're just like, (laughs) Keith, 107, smokes a pack of cigarettes every two hours. Now to the big macaholic who says he has eaten 12 thousand Big Macs over 30 years that works out to almost one every day and he says he's totally fit and healthy I was gonna say well Dave I don't know how your whip play is but I'm uh, really glad that you chose a profession that surrounds you in pussy all day (laughs) (laughs) uh, I'm really glad Dave chose this movie because uh, if he didn't I would and my sister and I when we were little kids watched watched this movie well all three of them um Watched them so much that we invented a game uh, called Indiana Jones, where we would pretend that our parents were Nazis and run around the house hiding from them and like trying to escape. But the the thing is, like, they weren't in on this game. They were just like cooking dinner, like watching the news. <laughs> so we'd be like running. Typical the Nazi table. behavior. Yeah, it was it was it was fun. I love the idea of your parents hearing an offhanded comment as one of you rise by, runs by and they're like, we got away from the Nazis. And your parents are like, I'm sorry, what? Um, wh- what what happened? What did you do today? 
What Not today, question? Hitler. What? For my movie, uh, I don't think you all understand how hard it was for me to pick one movie. <laughs> um, movies in general are pretty much what inspired and shaped me. I was a TV dinner kid, so I grew up glued to the TV and having these visual stories, uh, slowly instilling a desire uh, within me to one day create my own. Um, so I'm going to give some like honorable mention shout out so from suspense to horror uh the man who knew too much alien of course comedy some like it hot to galaxy quest sweeping mm-hmm. epics nice. gone with the wind crouching tiger hidden dragon Fuck uh you. action adventure indiana jones seventh voyage of sinbad the mummy and to the fantastical hook the shadow and the phantom and like so many others uh <laughs> movies were and still are important to me as books were and are still important to me an honorable mention uh goes to stephen summer's 1994 the jungle book because that one also really made an impact on me (laughs) i just wanted to live in the jungle with tigers and bears and boa constrictors uh that didn't happen that could rip your face off with (laughs) one paw yeah. <laughs> exactly but i think that one really just spoke to my my inner hermit of like just living with animals not dealing with people <laughs> so uh yeah so this one didn't just marry two of my favorite genres which are period pieces and fantasy but it also showed me that my imagination was capable of magic so my movie is the 1995 version a little princess directed by alfonso um sorry if i mispronounce this queron queron so quick summary of it. Um, it's based on a novel by Frances Hodgson Burnett, um, who also penned A Secret Garden, if you've heard of that one. And our plucky and wealthy protagonist, Sarah, enters a boarding school while her father fights for the British Army during World War I. Her good, fortunate, uh, her good fortune soon sours as word is received that her father has died in combat. And the diamond mine, which was once a font of their wealth, has dried up and become her ruin. So the avaricious and odious headmistress strips her of her station and belongings, forcing her to work at the school as an indentured servant. Sarah soon finds the comfort of a few friends and using her magical imagination to whisk them all away into fantastical story after story. Uh, There is a bit of a Disney ending, her dad, in this version at least. (laughs) Her dad isn't really dead and they find each other in the end thanks to her creative mind. So... Why I chose this movie is because she is a fucking bard. Um, (laughs) She tells these beautiful, magical, fantastical stories, mostly set in India, and they're drop-dead gorgeous. The cinematography of this movie is amazing. And they're all inspired from the real-life ancient epic Indian poem, the Ramayana, and she brings them to life. Yeah. So because of her gift, she is not only able to help herself with her own trauma, but the trauma of all the girls at the boarding school, as most of them have their own personal issues that are pretty much awful for a young child to experience. Like Mm -hmm. one girl was orphaned um, and dealt with PTSD issues, literally throwing like tantrums on the floor because of feelings of abandonment. There was another that was bullied for her weight and felt pretty unloved. Um, And then another who was the bully who dealt with a great deal of internal anger and jealousy. And then worst of all was there was the other serving girl with her who was a child of color. uh, And I cannot imagine the shit she had going on, especially during that time period. So uh, it was just a it's just a really, really solid movie. Um, And I personally have a lot of trauma in my life. And so growing up, this movie showed me that stories could distract. Yes, but also help heal the self and break down barriers of others to reach um, their pain as well. So it kind of taught me that stories are a powerful thing, and stories are what brought me comfort and distraction, but also outside knowledge, differing opinions, colorful characters that in my small town I would have never um, met or understood. And so through those stories, I got to travel through the world, through time itself, to escape into places that don't exist at all, uh, humans are incredible species for so many reasons, and maybe I have to say this because I'm in the arts, <laughs> but our ability to the create arts. the arts, our ability to create is unparalleled. Um, of all the feats of nature, this has to be up there with the most astounding. Um, we may or may not be gods of our world, but we can certainly be gods of the world we create, and those made-up silly worlds have the power to alter the real world, to alter people at their core for the better. So, that's my movie. <laughs> 
It's nothing compared to ejaculating acid onto somebody and impregnating them that way, though. <laughs> was just saying, voice. like, there's, yeah, there's some cooler <laughs> things that we could have gone for evolutionary-wise. Yeah, I mean, yeah. sure, it's magical journey through trauma and, you know, learning something about yourself or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but does she get laid in the end? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. With acid ejaculate. <laughs> yeah. This is important. Have you watched? Have you rewatched it recently? I have not. I um, watched the preview just to like give myself a like a nostalgic glimpse back into it, and it's like exactly how I remember it. I've watched that movie so many times. <laughs> okay, yeah. So I was wondering about these sort of things. Like, do they hold up? We talked about the prequels recently and how Adam's like uh, view on them changes kind of every time, every five years, and that sort of stuff. There it goes. Yeah. Rather than going with something uh, well-known, like Aliens or Indiana Jones, I decided to go with the most obscure piece of trash that I could remember from my childhood. (laughs) So, this is something that came out when I was, like, five, six years old. And I was a massive nerd back then. I was already, like, in living in adoration of David Attenborough and that sort of stuff. Anyway, but no, this was was an Australian TV show that came on, like, when you got home from school that ran for two seasons called The Ferals. Is that no. ferals as in F-E-R-A-L or F-A-R-R-E-L-L? Like, is it a name or is it like the word feral? No, it's the Farrells, like the Farrell. just okay. the, the R&B singer's family. It's like Keeping Up With The Cow Dashings, mm. an early version okay. of that. Yeah. No, it was the Ferals, F-E-R-A-L. And it, show, it centered on four puppets, uh, which were invasive species, right? So you had Darren the dog, Medigliana the cat, Rattus P. Rattus, the rat... <laughs> But it's so not a ratus. <laughs> yeah, well, ratus ratus is the scientific name for a black rat, yeah. and Mixie the rabbit. Mm. So Mixie's full name was Mixie M. Tosis after Mixie yep. Tosis. Uh, ratus and uh, Medigliana were reasonably intelligent, but Darren and Mixie were complete fucking numpties. Uh, <laughs> it's a couple drongos. Now, if I'm going to be honest, these were pretty horrific-looking puppets. Like, I, I look back at them to do, uh, you know, some quote-unquote research for this week. And Rattus, in particular, was kind of horrific. Like, quite scary. They But they were the heroes. They were the people you were supposed to be rooting for. They were the good guys. Uh, and then you had a dickhead landlord who was always trying to kick the ferals out. I don't know if that was supposed to be symbolism. I don't know if there was that much thought put into it at the time. Uh, and then you had the two villains who were a kangaroo named Kylie and a koala named Keith who thought they were, you know, all high and mighty because they were native Australian species. Uh, and then you Wait, had these... can we... Was the landlord an animal? No, the landlord was a human. <laughs> of course. Uh, duh, Dave, idiot. Were they human puppets or actual no, humans? actual humans, yeah. So, can, can I... If I just summarize this right now, we have four wild animals living in an apartment with a man constantly trying to kick them no, out. No, they're kind of living in a shack out the back. <laughs> and, and, and he's the villain he's he's the villain he's a dickhead yeah he's constantly trying to evict them and his other two tenants who are also humans not human puppets normal humans one of them's a okay. vet and the other one i'm pretty sure was like a biologist or ecologist oh, or something. vets suck we know that yeah but those were good guys so those the two humans were the nice humans and then there was the dickhead landlord and then, yeah, the other two dicks were, well, I guess antagonists were, yeah, the, the koala, Keith, and the kangaroo, Kylie. And there was just so much Australiana about this. Like, you guys know what Americana is. Well, Australiana yeah. exists as well. So, lots of corrugated iron fences, uh, hills hoists. The ferals called uh, Kylie and Keith the bogans from the bush. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> were they bogans? That were a bit boganish, yeah, but so were the ferals, <laughs> like big time. Oh, I assume the ferals were the were the bogans. Yeah, so if and I, I, well, no, I'm a, I'm assuming there's a a wombat or a possum in here somewhere that's selling meth on the side of the street. Yeah, <laughs> ice. This is before meth. Uh, before ice. Some interesting tidbits. So Tony Collette actually auditioned for the role of the vet back in the day. Wow. Did she? Yeah, and she turned it down because uh, she got what we assume was a role in uh, the film that made her a star in Australia, uh, which is called Muriel's Wedding. No, I said Tony Collette. She's Aussie. I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 yeah so she got the role in Muriel's Wedding, which is why she, which is why she's presumed to have turned down the role in The Ferals, because the, the woman <laughs> who directed The Ferals absolutely loved her. Uh, and an inspiration for uh, The Ferals was actually Meet the Feebles. Uh, which was a very, I would say, 
edgy early Peter Jackson movie. Really? Huh. Yeah. And one more thing uh, to do with films that we've covered on this podcast. Tina Matthews actually made the puppets after working with Jim Henson on Labyrinth. Wow. Explains yeah. why they're so terrifying. <laughs> yeah, very it terrifying. Does. Yeah. It does. I don't feel like any of this needed inspiration. You just, you walk out to your shed one day and a snake <laughs> tries to get you and you're like, I must write this. And right. you run back to your typewriter. But yeah, it was just, look, it was really... <laughs> I loved it as a kid. I loved it so much when I was back in Australia, like two months ago, we actually saw an exhibition on Australian, an exhibition on Australian media, and they had two of the original puppets in there, which was just, oh, like, that's really cool. It's really fun. I want to watch this show. It sounds um, like a fun, like a fun time. Yeah. It sounds like a blast. Do yourself a favor and Google Rattus P. Rattus the Ferals <laughs> now to see what I mean about this horrifying, uh, horrifying looking character. I found it. One of the things I did want to talk about was this concept of um, the kangaroo and the koala as, like, the villains. They were, oh, they weren't exactly villainous, but they were definitely the dickheads. Like, uh, they, yeah. they weren't the good guys. And um, we have situations in part, I should say, only parts of Australia, where we have turned kangaroos and koalas into actual problems. Now, we've talked, uh, we talked a while ago about the fact that in some parts of Australia, koalas are functionally extinct, but only in, like, local areas where there's so few of them that their natural ecosystem function has just been lost. So there's a few, um, there's a few still hanging around, but the, the populations are so low and they're not, there's no real chance for them to rebound. But there are other parts of Australia where, particularly for kangaroos, populations have just exploded to the point where it's, there are real problems, not only for other species, but for the kangaroos themselves. So yeah. one of the big problems with kangaroos is that we have taken away their only natural predator. Uh, which is the dingo. For those who don't know, there is this massive fucking dingo-proof fence in Australia, which runs, I think uh, I saw a stat recently, that if you stretch the entire thing out, it would go from London to New York. Wow. Really? Yeah, so it, it keeps dingoes out of, like, this huge chunk of southeastern Australia. And, you know, you get them coming through every once in a while, but they're either shot by farmers straight away or they just die out because there's just not enough of them there to sustain populations. So they don't have any natural predators. And then their competitors, which are generally smaller animals, can be taken out by uh, cats or foxes. And cats or foxes, other feral animals, which are huge problems in Australia, really bad invasive species. Uh, and then... In these regions, you get these enormous population booms of kangaroos. And because, you know, the nature of climate change and drought in Australia uh, and the restrictions of water for, uh, for farmers, you get massive overpopulation and lots of kangaroos just starving to death. So when I was in Australia at the end of 2018, I was there in summer. Uh, and we were driving through northern Victoria, southern New South, southern New South Wales. Uh, through very much desert areas. And there were just kangaroos, not just lining the roads, uh, because they've come into contact with humans more often, but you could just see them in the fields nearby, just dead kangaroo corpses everywhere, emaciated uh, kangaroos all over the place. Yeah. And so we get into this situation where we say, do we cull kangaroos uh, to reduce that overpopulation and stop this kind of starvation and suffering? I actually was lucky enough to talk to a former uh, professor that I heard lectures from when I was doing my undergrad, Professor Kath Anderside. And I have a couple of quotes from her here. And one of them was that my view as a person who works with wildlife and management and animal welfare is that we should never let animals starve. To me, starvation is unacceptable. If a farmer has sheep in a drought and the sheep were starving and he didn't go around and cull those sheep, the RSPCA, Royal Society for Protection and Care of Animals, would prosecute him because it's illegal to be cruel to animals. So her point of view was that it was the same with the kangaroos. If we have all these kangaroos dying of starvation, you should be able to go and cull them. But because they're such a charismatic species, there's always big pushback whenever this happens in Australia. Which in some instances I can understand because it's often associated with it being bad for farmers and farmers can get fucked despite the fact it's where your food comes from. Uh, And there is a lot of miseducation forced on farmers that, you know, means they often don't get the best representation. But at the same time, there's this whole rural-urban divide that you find all over the place where there's a lack of understanding between the two groups, which really just reinforces that division. Uh, But there's also parts of Australia where koalas get into a similar situation where you have rampant overpopulation 
and we could cull them, but you cannot fucking cull a koala because we love them so much. I mean, they've got the big silly eyes. They don't look away from you because they don't recognize you as a predator. So they just stare at you. <laughs> uh, they've got, you know, front facing oh. eyes as well, which is a big They've cool. all got chlamydia. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think that's stopping us from culling them. I think that's something that would potentially aid uh, efforts to do so. We have uh, parts of Australia where we've had massive uh, koala population booms. And normally when you have a boom, you are going to have a population bust as well. And that could do them a lot of damage long term. Uh, And I think we've talked about this on the pod before is that you can't relocate koalas because not only are koalas extremely picky when it comes to only eating gum trees. A lot of them have such specialized gut bacteria that they can only eat certain combinations of eucalyptus species. So they might only be able to eat three or four different species of gum trees. And if you take them to a totally different part of even the state they're in, they just won't be able to process the leaves in the same way. Transporting animals under the best of conditions, particularly wild animals, is so difficult. So we did a lot of uh, capture training in vet school and we had a wildlife vet come in and he was like, you guys watch TV and you think it's so cool. You shoot them with a dart and they go down. But he's like, you actually have a very short period that you have to get an anesthetic into them and get them quieted because if they struggle too much while you're trying to move them, they actually do so much muscle tissue and they develop so many metabolic byproducts that they'll die. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's really stressful just being dumped in a new area out of nowhere as well. Yep. I understand as well some of the calls against culling these species uh, because, I mean, like I said, in certain parts of Australia, can these uh, species of kangaroos and koalas are endangered or, like I said before, functionally extinct. So I can totally imagine why a member of the public would be like, hey, uh, why are we culling a species that's endangered in parts of this country? So the solution to it is just ongoing public education and hoping that it sinks in at some point. One of those uh, slowly but surely things, I'm afraid. Yeah. But regardless, I mean, they're still not the bad guys in terms of posing a threat to invasive species like cats and dogs and rabbits and, uh, and rats. Landlords. Yeah. La- well, landlords are still the very much the bad guys in Australia. Exactly. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Fool this man! So now those were movies that inspired us, but what about, uh, just briefly, what's the movie that either you were horrified by its its monster or just horrified by the movie itself as a child. I was so fucking scared of the velociraptors in Jurassic Park. That scene in <laughs> that scene in the kitchen scared the crap out of me when I was like six and seven. I was, really? I was terrified. Yeah, man. That was awful. The uh the original nineteen fifty one The Thing. I remember as a kid that my father had told my mom, he was like, I want to show him this like really old horror movie. And my mom was like, it's going to scare him. <laughs> and my dad was like, no, no, he's going to be brave. You're going to be tough, right, David? It's from the film. And of course, oh, the minute- <laughs> Gaslighting you from the start. Yeah, but the minute he told me this, I was like, well, anything that happens, I'm going to have to be brave. Yeah. And so very different from the John Carpenter's The Thing, it's sort of this big vegetable creature that wakes up from the freezer and they see it fighting with these dogs at this point and it gets an arm ripped off. And that's all that I can remember of the 1951 The Thing because I was so scared that I knew that I had to get away, but I didn't want to tell my father that I was so scared. So I went to the bathroom and threw up because I was so scared and got (laughs) caught by my mother throwing up, at which point a giant fight ensued between my mom and my dad that I had been so terrified that I had vomited. (laughs) And that's all I can remember of the 1951, The Thing. Perfect. Nice. That's uh, amazing. Mine absolutely has to be Mars Attacks. Um, I saw this movie in fifth grade. Very similar story, Dave. Uh, We were not allowed to watch PG-13 or R-rated movies growing up. And so every once in a while, my mom would get sort of a wild hair uh, and take us to see inappropriate movies that we were not (laughs) mentally or emotionally prepared for. And so she thought that this comedy was fine as a fifth grader who had never seen anything horror related. So this movie scared me so bad that for, I want to say the next two years, I had nightmares of aliens running down our street hopping into my like breaking through my bedroom window and shooting me with their ray gun and i i every night i would just wonder am i going to be a red skeleton or am i going to be a green skeleton and i just wanted to know (laughs) 
And of course, now I watch it. And I, I love I love that movie. It's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> I had a similar experience with Mars Attacks as well. Yeah, I remember really? seeing it once and being terrified by it and then seeing it when I was like 13 and thinking, this is great. I love this. This is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, my I guess uh, this wasn't when I was a kid, but this is a good story. In high school, I was tricked into seeing a horror movie uh, by my friends who said uh, it was a romantic comedy about uh, a wedding titled The Ring. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And I fully had not seen any previews to it, so I'd never heard of it before. And that opening scene where he's like in the closet and his face is all like contorted. I was like, what are we watching? (laughs) Yeah. Just a dude who's just really, really afraid of commitment, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Am I right, fellas? So, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, I didn't really have a movie that scared me, so instead I'll give you two little anecdotes. One being Uh the original movie, a.k.a. the book. When I was about eight or nine, my parents got me a big box of the great illustrated classics, a.k.a. little abridged versions of classic stories and and, uh, books that would be appropriate length and potentially subject matter for children to read. And the first one I opened was The Hound of the Baskervilles because I was like, cool, it's got an animal in it. I love monsters. Let's read this. Very first page has, to child Adam, the most terrifying image of a dog I've ever seen in my life. It's just a very menacing, like, big, beefy Staffordshire Terrier, like, pit pit bull looking thing with these pointy um, ears, like, snarling with the moon behind it. And I very proudly remember slamming the book shut and not... (laughs) Not being able to open it for years. Like, I was honestly petrified of this book. I, w- I want to chuck in a couple more as well. Uh, the Witches, the first movie adaptation of Roald Dahl's book. Wasn't allowed Roald to Dahl's see book. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was terrifying. Getting turned into a mouse. And just the scene of the kids getting turned into mice was, like, was really horrifying. Yeah. Uh, and on Adam's theme of, you know, books that scared him, every single Goosebumps cover when I was like five years old. Mm. Those are pretty gross. Did not like that. Yeah. I always found them gross more than I did scary, but I definitely see yeah. where you're coming from. Spooky, scary skeletons and shivers down your spine. Yeah, I just wanted to say, uh, longtime listeners and even those who just found us, we appreciate you exploring the science behind movie monsters with us all of these years. This podcast was always meant to be something educational as well as enjoyable. So we hope you have learned a little something and had some fun along the way. Uh, Your support has meant the world to each of us. So we thank you. We thank you very kindly. Thank you. And if you want to get in contact at all one last time and just let us know, you know, something that you learned from the podcast, that'd be great. As we say here at the end of every episode of Cinematic Animalia, one last time, the monsters aren't real, but the science is. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Bye. (laughs) 